Hi there, Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching, and today we are going to be discussing any myths that you might be experiencing related to your child's suicidality, self-harm threats, and uh, the danger that they might have towards themselves. And this is really important if you're parenting a highly sensitive child. So if your highly sensitive child is struggling with uh, words like they're saying things like, life would be better off without me, um, I wish I were dead, I, you don't love me, I hate myself, I hate you, uh, it's incredibly important that you stay tuned to today's conversation. It's going to be a hard one, but it's based in facts. So uh, pay attention, listen up, ask yourselves if you're having any of these assumptions we're going to cover, and we're going to know exactly what to do to break out of this pattern. Hello, and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children? Stop walking on eggshells and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you wanna know the answer, you're in the right place. So here at MTC, we help parents of highly sensitive kids break out of the pattern of the meltdown shutdown cycle. And we help parents do that in as little as eight weeks, depending on uh, the family's circumstances, especially for parents who are having daily meltdowns, uh, their child is struggling on a daily basis or even multiple times a day basis. And if your child during those meltdowns is is making statements like life would be better off without me, or um, I wish I were dead, or I want to go um, to, to grandma in heaven, et cetera, Um, Even things like you hate me, I don't love you, you don't love me, uh, these are all significant concerns and it's important for you to understand that when your child is young, it can be difficult for parents to hear this, obviously, right? It's heart-wrenching to hear this this kind of language come from your child, this is your baby, right? And uh, when that happens, it can be very, very easy for you to start to uh, fall into the, the typical brain trap, right? We're talking about the human condition here. Being a human it is going to be um, important for you to wonder, should you be taking this seriously? You know, my child is five. My child is seven. Uh, what are the likelihoods of my child actually acting on this behavior? And your brain is going to want to find a way to confirm its bias. And the bias that you're you're likely going to want to confirm is that your child is going to be okay, Right. Um, obviously, you, you are a great parent, you love your child, and you're missing some of the strategies to break out of this pattern, but that doesn't mean that you don't care or that you don't love your child or that you wouldn't do anything to support them, right? And so just from a, a pure neuroscientifical uh, perspective, your child is going to, um, going to say these things and your brain is going to wonder, well, wait a minute, this isn't my kid, this isn't um, how they really feel. This isn't exactly what's um, you know what's running through your through their mind or their heart. And we're going to break down some of these statistics for you because they've shifted. And uh, we have an update for a video that I made a few years ago, uh, breaking down some of these myths. And so today we're going to update you on the unfortunate uh, increase 
in suicide rates and uh, suicide statistics for children. And we're going to talk about what this means as parenting a highly sensitive child, uh, as well as talk about why this is such a, uh, a huge passion of mine uh, being a professional in this space. So I think about one of the reasons that uh, you might be wondering whether or not what your child is saying is, is accurate is because your child probably also uh, calls you names or and then says that they don't mean it, um, might tease siblings or friends and then say that they don't mean it. So you might be wondering in your mind if um, your child says things that they regret, does, it, does that also mean that they don't mean their threats to themselves or, or the report that they wish that they could um, change how they're living? And uh, this can be really important to, for you as a parent to learn how to not make those associations. Because when we think about the statistics of, of uh, children who are actually complete suicide, uh, it's important for us to be paying attention to the real and raw numbers rather than just your assumption on your particular child. So um, let's review what our mission here is at MTC. Now, we help parents of highly sensitive kids who are stuck in the meltdown cycle. These are parents who are dealing with daily meltdowns, uh, multiple times a day meltdowns, uh, multiple times a week meltdowns even. And, and this is important to notice, especially if your child is over the age of four, because daily meltdowns is not developmentally appropriate for four-year-olds as well. And it's also true that meltdowns are developmentally appropriate for four-year-olds, but just not daily, just definitely not multiple times a day, okay? So this is critical, important information and uh, clear for you to make sure that you're not um, dismissing your child's in emotional intensity based on their age, as well as not dismissing your child's uh, reports of how big their emotions are based on their age. Okay, so we're going to be covering statistics as well as research from the mental health world. So uh, if this is the first time that you're listening to me, I want to just give a brief rundown of my back background so that you're clear on why what I'm saying is actual truth, information that you should take to hand and take action on. And um, so we're going to cover that briefly as well. So uh, I've been working in the mental health field since high school. One of my uh, first internships, I knew I wanted to be a therapist since high school, I wanted to work with um, struggling adolescents. And I started my internship journey at that point. I was blessed enough to be, um, you know, to be schooled in a public education county that uh, set up internships for some subsets of, of you know, different study tracks we were taking. And my internship was in a residential treatment center for young children. These are children who not all of them were abused. Some of them definitely had really significant concerns with, um, you know, in histories of trauma. And then others, uh, other children I know now, you know, we didn't know that back then uh, when I was in, in, in high school in the 90s, um, was or early when when did I go to high school? <laughs> um, late nineties, uh, early two thousands. Um, was that these um, these children were highly sensitive, and parents just just didn't know how to support them in staying safe uh, because they didn't have a trauma history, and yet they were removed from their parents' care due to parents feeling like they couldn't keep their children safe in. Um, in this home. And so the, the, the residential treatment center that I worked in in Massachusetts for um, for that semester, um, you know, I witnessed some pretty significant behaviors that the young children were exhibiting, unsafe behaviors um, and, and really quite aggressive behaviors as well as uh, um, self-harmful behaviors. So 
um, that carried, okay, so I've, I've, I've been in the mental health field, working in the mental health field, um, finished high school with that internship, uh, moved into college and, um, and, and maintained my interest in internships in the mental health world, spent um, one of my internships in, um, in a juvenile uh, detention facility outside of Philadelphia. And so you can imagine how intense that was um, in terms of the trauma histories of the, the, the teenagers that I worked with um, had, and then uh, moved into community mental health. So I was working with families with a varying uh, socioeconomic status, many of them with trauma histories, many of them um, refugees or um, you know, families who, from different countries. Uh, gang affiliations, et cetera. And then some of them were, uh, you know, children, teenagers whose uh, parents were, it, simply it was a mismatch in parenting and their needs were very significantly intense. So um, low level trauma in terms of families, you know, struggling to make ends meet and, and that um, and, you know, inability to meet all emotional needs based on parents just needing to work a, a lot. Um, was was definitely part of the population that I served, and uh, that's where I received my training on supporting uh, teenagers with chronic suicidality, chronic self-harm, and have been continuing my specialty um, since then. That was my first job out of grad school. So I've been doing this type of work um, and supporting sensitive kids with big emotions to the point where they develop suicidal thoughts and actions or chronic self-harm uh, for uh, over a decade and um, have run, you know, residential treatment centers, been the, the clinical supervisor there, and then also ran my own private practice for five years. Uh, the only private practice, uh, group private practice that I know of in the United States that specialized in working with highly sensitive children only. We only served highly sensitive children and highly sensitive teens, so we did not serve the general population. Um, and uh, we were the largest practice that did that in the United States. So, um, in, and I ran that practice for five years and recently closed it down in order to fully support our clients here through the coaching company, which I started that company uh, about six months later um, because our clients were receiving much faster results and um, it were, were much more able to be autonomous and in a, a speedier way. The traditional mental health model uh, wasn't meeting um, the, the needs of uh, what, what I knew we could do. Um, through you know through the the success that we saw in the um, in the coaching company uh, in the time that both parents really appreciated and and as well as myself and my team really appreciated because we all highly value efficiency here at MTC and so now I um, simply <laughs> run uh, this company where we serve hundreds of families every year in breaking out of the the uh, meltdowns shutdown cycle and uh, seriously uh, reducing and eliminating those suicidal thoughts for children when that's relevant. Now, you are a parent of a highly sensitive child. That means that your child fits the criteria for one out of every five, okay? So 20% of the population. Not all highly sensitive people, nor all highly sensitive kids, develop suicidal thoughts and actions, okay? So I'm, I'm, I wanna make sure that I'm clear here that not all highly sensitive kids develop meltdowns uh, to the point where they are daily, multiple times a day, okay? So if you're listening and you're like, oh, you know, my kid has a meltdown like once a month or, um, you know, really has an emotional outburst, you know, every couple of weeks, uh, I wonder if, if this is really the show that I need to be paying attention to. If your child's emotional intensity is that infrequent and they're also not shutting down um, at a greater frequency, 
right? Uh, then this probably is not the, you know, I'm probably not the authority that you need to be listening to and, and taking all the information in step by step by step. Why? Because you are um, not in a situation where the, the, the intensity your child is experiencing is at the extreme intense level that our specialty is. Okay, so not all highly sensitive kids um, are, are stuck in the meltdown cycle. Okay. And I'm talking about the meltdown cycle. What that also means is chronic and consistent outbursts, chronic and consistent thoughts of self-harm and, and thoughts of suicidal, um, action. And then if it gets to the point where action is taken regularly, then, uh, therapy would be more appropriate. And I have a different show, uh, speaking about that. And we, we support parents in finding the right resources in, in mental health world simply because uh, I do maintain my mental health license and uh, cannot be uh, the, the only service, um, you know, the work that we do cannot be the only service when you have a child who's actively taking, um, taking actions to kill themselves. So uh, I'm going to speak a little bit dryly, but also passionately on this topic because it's been the, the course of the study of my career for over a decade. So it's something that I know I have not only expertise in, uh, but it's also important to understand that no other coach in this space of parents uh, who are, who are um, parenting highly sensitive children speaks about suicidality with the level of frequency and expertise that I do. So it's incredibly important that you listen up if this is something that you guys are struggling with because the meltdown cycle develops into self-harm and suicidality uh, by the time the teenager hits hits adolescence, if it if the aggression doesn't continue into uh, aggression towards others, eventually most highly sensitive kids stop aggressing towards others, and instead they turn internal and they start to that aggression turns internal and and uh, suicidal actions and self harm happens uh, much more regularly. Uh, this is something that that I've seen over the course of my career, like I said, uh, for many many years, and so when you we're looking at this meltdown cycle, this is where it's headed if you don't head it off at the pass, and that's something that I can say with absolute certainty. Your child will not grow out of the meltdown cycle unless they learn the skills that they are lacking. Okay, this isn't a maturity issue. This isn't a pandemic issue. We'll talk about that later. This is a skill gap issue in every single member of the family. Okay, so that means it's not your child's problem. It's also not entirely your problem. This is a family dynamic skill gap issue. So the entire family as a unit needs to be served in breaking out of this pattern. Again, something that most people will not be telling you, all right? Um, you might be considering following or, or, or listening to an individual therapist. Uh, you might be working with a kid coach or, uh, or another coach who coaches parents only. Um, who is, you know, who's only focused on how you speak to your child rather than supporting your child and changing their behavior as well. Um, all of those um, methods and those approaches will leave you holding the bag. So it's incredibly important that you focus on what we're talking about today uh, if this is the challenge that you're having, okay? Because, great news, you don't have to go all the way to, you know, adolescence where chronic hospitalizations are your end game. Okay, so we're speaking about this from hope, but also from facts and truth and, and personal understanding as well. Uh, and I'm not one to sugarcoat things. That's always been my personality, but it's incredibly important that I not sugarcoat related to suicidality because tomorrow is not a guarantee. And I say that definitively, unfortunately, because I've experienced suicide in my uh, close family multiple times. And we'll, 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 we'll cover that today if you haven't heard uh, more about my personal experiences as well and why, um, why this, is, this, is so, uh, this is a matter that's so near and dear to my heart. So when we think about the, the challenges that, um, 
that families are dealing with today. Uh, one thing that we, we obviously know is that the pandemic has added stress to the family dynamic, right? And, and one of these things that you can be wondering is whether or not your child's frustrations and aggravations are due to screen time or if they're due to um, you know, a change in their circumstances, school you know, being uh, shifted over the last couple of years, stress added to the family. And I wanna, be bust, I wanna, I wanna bust some of these myths today as well. So according to the 2020 CDC report, all right, so the, the, the data was gathered in 2020, self-harm has increased by 181% from 2001 to 2020 for children ages 10 through 19. All right, so if you're parenting a uh, preteen, it's important that you pay attention to these statistics. Take a look at the image that I am putting here, and obviously these stats will be posted in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast, so you don't have to write all of this down. Um, uh, but if you're watching this on video, you, you see the image uh, posted here as well. All right, now let's break it down for younger children, because if you're parenting a six-year-old, you're like, okay, that's fine, we've got four years, we can figure this out, right? Um, no. In 2009, suicide was the eighth leading cause of death for children, children ages five through 12. I'm gonna say that again. For children ages five through 12, suicide was the eighth leading cause of death. In 2019, in 2019, it was the fifth leading cause of death. Suicide is climbing as a viable option for your highly sensitive kids. Now, in um, in research that the CDC has also done, it's important to understand that uh, parents actually underestimate the veracity, the truth of their child's understanding of death when their child is talking about death and threatening death. Okay, so another CDC study spoke about how when children talk about death, parents will often think that um, you know the child doesn't really understand. Um, what that means and the study done for uh, for children five and up was uh, when they interviewed those children those children were actually very capable of demonstrating uh, and understanding that death is permanent uh, that your your body is no longer working that you are turned off if you will that's our language that we use um, in MTC uh, where you power down and you never power back up right um, this understanding this cognitive understanding was much more thorough than parents thought for their children who were naming uh, that they wish they were dead. So it's important for you to understand that even if you think your child doesn't understand what they're saying when they say that they wish they would die, the research is definitive. Your child understands more than you think, okay? So this is incredibly important when you hear those words to take them seriously. Cannot stress that enough. Why? Because since 1990, suicide rates for, highly, for, for children in general, um, ages 5 through 12, has increased by 195%. And the biggest climb has been from the years 2013 through 2020. So seven years um, from the report when the, re the data was gathered in 2020. So what that means is that this is not a pandemic issue. This is not an issue that will fade. Actually, the statistics dipped in uh, from 2019 to 2020 briefly, but it's, um, it's quite minimal, all right? So when we think about the steadiness, the steadiness of those stats were, hover um, 
from 2018, 2019, and 2020. Those bars are very similar. So when we look at that research, it's incredibly important for you to notice that the stats actually spiked, um, started spiking, started climbing more significantly in 2013, and then spiked around um, 2017, 2018. Okay, so this is not a pandemic issue. This is not a screen time issue. It's not a TikTok issue. Okay, so um, this is a child emotional behavioral health problem. And great news is by parenting a sensitive kid, you actually have much more impact than you think you do on your child's mental health. We'll cover that again today as well. So um, self-harm rates for youth ages five, five, self-harm, youth ages five. Let's just say that right there. They studied self-harm in five-year-olds all the way through 19, okay? They have increased by 411%. Again, we saw the same biggest climb between uh, 2013 and the stats stayed steady from 2018 to 2020. Same thing as suicide, okay? Um, and this is important. And what, the reason why we separate this out, because as mental health professionals, mental health consultants, um, the... Um, suicide and self-harm are not um, uh, the same. So a child might engage in self-harm. It doesn't mean that they're suicidal. And a child might uh, report uh, self-harm, sorry, suicidal thoughts. It doesn't mean that they're going to engage in self-harm. So um, those two stats are separated, all right? And that's consistent and continue to research for many, many decades. Um, now, here's a critical component that has been significantly shifted, all right? Um, Typically, we used to see adolescent males as, um, you know, much more starkly engaging and completing suicide. So attempting suicide and it having it actually take effect. And over the last several years, there's actually been a stark increase in completed suicide by females. This is a huge, huge difference in the, the statistics primer, um, prior to um, prior to, prior to this data coming out in 2020. So it's really important to pay attention to the fact that girls are actually catching up to boys, uh, adolescents in, um, in this dynamic. It, it's not going down, all right? Um, so the lethality of these suicide attempts is growing. And uh, males complete suicide, 50% of males who complete suicide, male t teenagers who complete suicide, um, excuse me, males 5 to 19, this is the right stat, um, from age 2020 to 2010 to 2020, all right, so even you know, shorter um, stat here for this one, 49% uh, uh, completed suicide uh, from fire, firearms, male, uh, male children, all right, and then 40% by suffocation, typically one would assume that's hanging, 4% uh, by poisoning, so pills, and then 7% by other means. When we look at females, 57% uh, of um, their completed suicides is by suffocation. And then 22% by firearms, 14% by poisoning, and 8% uh, by other methods, okay? So when we look at all of this, these statistics, we have to notice that uh, children and, and teens are choosing more lethal means um, to, you know, to, to get rid of the emotional pain that they're experiencing, and that is continuing. All right, so the suicide rate, that's what, that's what we mean. So suicide attempts are turning into suicides uh, based on, on these stats, all right, especially for young girls. And so when we think about the important component here, 
the great news is that suicide is preventable. Let's talk about what that means. First and foremost, you have to take your, your child's statements seriously. All right, so research published this, this year, these are multiple studies, so I'm not going to um, cite them all, but one of the ones um, uh, reported in, in a recent, and this is these are professional conferences that myself and my team are attending. So um, this information isn't readily accessible typically to, to laymen, so it's important for me to, to share all this with you. Uh, because it's not necessarily something that you're going to get. It's published in um, mental health journals, and oftentimes those mental health journals, the way that they stay uh, capable of publishing is by charging a fee. So um, you need to be um, uh, subscribed to to the journal, or you go you attend a conference and um, you listen to the presentation where that those studies are presented. So um, suicidality in teens is highly correlated with family functioning. All right, so what that means is that poor or ineffective family functioning doesn't cause suicidality. But when you have a decrease in family functioning and there's a lot of discord in the family, you have a much more likelihood uh, that the teen is um, is going to be going to be um, has a higher likelihood of engaging in suicidal acts, okay, chronic suicidality or um, completing suicide. Research also demonstrates that teaching parents, here's the good news, right? The research demonstrating teaching parents emotion regulation skills to then coach to their children improves self-regulation as measured by heart rate variability. So many of you might have um, some sort of heart rate variability tracker, right? It could be on your Apple watch, could be on your Fitbit, could be, you know, you have one of those polar um, things when you exercise and you're noticing heart rate variability as your heart spiking and decreasing, right? So this is one of a, cl a clear measure of how stressed out someone is, right? It's the thing that they study when they're, they're studying people with histories of, of heart attack, one of the measures, all right? So um, heart rate variability, your heart's pumping, you're stressed. There's no way for you to be calm and your heart rate um, be you know pumping going mile a minute. Those two things are not, you cannot be breathing calmly and slow your body down and have your heart still um, uh, continue at a, at, a, at a high intense rate. There's stress going on in the body uh, when that's happening and that's actually stuffing. That's a stuffing experience. So when we're talking about body regulation, when your body feels calm and your, your organs are acting in a calm way out of survival mode, um, emotion regulation skills taught to children via the parents have a direct shift in heart rate variability, beating heart rate, okay? Intense heart rate goes down, all right? Now, here's an important piece, because this is something, now if you haven't been listening to us, uh, I'll repeat it, but um, this is something that we speak about all the time. Parents of highly sensitive kids are the therapeutic change agent for their children. Research speaks to it consistently over and over again, and, and here's just another study that, that came out um, quite a while ago. All right. So when we think about that, um, the important component for you when you're searching for professionals to be listening to, if you are the um, supporting your child and engaging in that professional directly, it is much less likely for highly for a highly sensitive child to take that information and generalize it into the home, into school, etc. Okay, it has to be taught through the parents. Uh, research is definitive on that. Highly sensitive kids struggle with generalizing skills. That's because that skill needs to be taught through the parent-child relationship, not through a professional child relationship, professional to child. Okay, so um, 
once your child gets to the point where there's teens, that actually has to be twofold. You have to work with the, the professional needs to be working with a teen and with the parent. It's also true that not a lot of professionals, and especially in the mental health world, aka therapists, are going to be um, engaging regularly and directly with the teen. Typically, they will prefer to prioritize confidentiality and use that as a guise to not meet with the parents. Um, that's really ineffective work, especially for highly sensitive teens who are engaging in the shutdown cycle and isolating and, and refusing, etc. So it's important for you to be paying attention to what kind of services and what kind of professionals um, you're listening to and why and assess and being able to assess why uh, what's not working. So if you are engaged with a professional that's not us, you were able to advocate with that professional um, to change it up. And if they are, if they don't have the skill set to change it up, then uh, then you have your answer whether or not this is going to ever work out. So uh, the the other important piece that I want to make sure that you're clear on now, parents of you know you might be thinking your initial response is, oh my gosh, sweetheart, you must be experiencing so much pain. Let me give you so much love and care, and let's talk about how much I love you and how this would be so hard if you killed yourself, then I would be devastated. I wouldn't be able to live. You'll never do that, right? Um, and, and that heart-wrenching um, experience that you are trying to convey to your child is actually going to significantly decrease the effectiveness of the skills that your child is going to engage in. And this is really important because when we think about, and uh, make sure that you go listen to my show about picking your battles, okay? So I'm not gonna speak about that because that's, um, um, you know, for um, for a long, for a long, because that's a, that's a training for a different day. But what you're doing is you're focusing on just the love component of parenting your sensitive child. Oh my gosh, I love you so so much. That uh, and my love should keep you from hurting yourself or wanting to hurt yourself uh, or wanting to end your life. And that is also something that. Um, you might hear from other professionals, especially parents of uh, professionals who are talking about, um, uh, you know, coaching your highly sensitive child. So, so coaches are, or, or you know, usually this is more relevant for um, mommy bloggers, you know, people who don't, who might have changed the relationship with their own children and then tried to disseminate that information to other parents for for use. So um, they have no professional background on solving this problem and they don't have um, experience in solving this problem for um, for for multiple people um, until they started to kind of like try and give advice, right? So this we're not talking about advice giving here. We're talking about being able to systematically break out of the pattern of watching children want to die and want to eliminate their life and then seeing them stop that consistently. Okay, so that's incredibly important to understand the difference. Um, typically, you'll hear advice from people who are not skilled at this subset of need, right? Um, they will say things like, um, you know, make sure your child gets enough affection, um, you know, support them and love them and ride them through it. Uh, be there, but don't try to um, emotionally, um, you know, change that behavior right then and there. Okay, so out of context, those skills sound appropriate. Uh, but when we look at children who are experiencing A, intense physical pain, B, intense emotional pain, uh, comfort and warmth at the time of intense pain actually increases somatic pain. So, um, you know, pain, headaches, belly aches uh, are all what's considered somatic pain. Now, obviously, uh, ruling out any GI issues with the doctor, right? Any uh, medical issues with the pediatrician. Always consult your pediatrician if your kid's reporting physical pain, right? Um, but if the pediatrician says, you know, I think it's anxiety or I think it's, um, you know, the, the, it's all in your kid's head, right? 
then this is what we're talking about here. Um, if your child does, if your highly sensitive child does not have regulation skills, the ability to notice their emotions and decrease it, what happens is the phenomena of what you focus on grows. All right. So when you're focusing on the intense emotion that your child is having and you're asking them to share about it, they say to you, why are you making this worse? I don't want to talk about it. See, now you mommy, you made me feel bet worse. And all you're trying to do is say, honey, I love you. You can feel the feeling, notice it, right? But if your child doesn't have a skill set to decrease it, it's like sticking them in scalding water and then telling them to feel the, feel the experience. They don't know how to jump out. They're getting burned. All right. Now, Marsha Linehan says that um, uh, being a highly sensitive person without skills, a chronic who's engaging in chronic suicidality and chronic self-harm is like walking through life without skin. So imagine your child and stuck in the meltdown cycle, same thing, without skin being thrown into a boiling pot. They're going to be screeching and gut-wrenching in that experience, right? Obviously. It's the same experience when you ask them to tell about their emotions when they have zero self-regulation skills. Okay, so comfort and warmth um, without structure and support is actually incredibly, um, um, uh, increases the intensity incredibly, which creates this wedge, right? You might be seeing where you're walking on eggshells and then your child is struggling because they are um, peaking their intensity and they don't know how to get off that peak, all right? So this is why it's really important that you focus on teaching your child emotional regulation skills and you are the one who's doing that. And if having those conversations, you know, any run-of-the-mill coping skill uh, lesson is difficult, then it's likely time for you to be um, having a conversation with our team because emotion regulation skills in the conversation about them um, needs to be had regularly with your child. If your child's struggling with that, then professional support is is appropriate. Um, but you know. This is not something that we've said to, to not do, right? Your child needs not only to be able to emotionally communicate with you, but also to learn how to how to decrease their intensity throughout the day, not just when they dump it on you, like because that happens usually at the most inconvenient times, right? Bedtime or when it's time to go to school, etc. So, it, when we think about being able to break out of this pattern, you need to be able to teach your child playfully. You should be engaging in games and, and communication in a playful way to support your child in building those skills. And you should also be uh, following through on communicating with your child that you are going to help them pace their growth. They might be just displaying some pretty significant unsafe behaviors and you can't be tackling all of those at once because that's going to create even more shame than your child already has because what you're doing is you're sending the message to your child that they're broken. Um, even if you know this is being done obviously more likely un uh, inadvertently or after you're exhausted, right? Like I can't with you. Um, that kind of exhaustion reaction, which obviously we know as an awesome parent, you regret. So you need to be able to break out of this pattern consistently, okay? So we've spoken a lot about myths today. We've spoken a lot about the strategies that you need to be able to implement and how to do that um, uh, from a high level. And in terms of specificity, if you need that support, then it's important to book a call with our team because uh, that needs to be tailored to your particular child. It's not a cookie cutter. I'm not going to give you, you know, words to say or coping skill that works every time with every kid because every kid's different. Um, and I would actually be playing into your belief that this is simple and it's not. So I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I've lost two family members to suicide, one dear friend's uh, father to suicide, and uh, one aunt to opioid addiction. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, I know firsthand uh, the pain, exhaustion, and uh, significant uh, aggravation, as well as obvious despair and sadness, that um, loss of a family member due to thinking that this could be easily handled, it, it creates significant damage when it gets to that point, let alone the fact that my relationship with my sister is uh, quite estranged at this point. And so, um, you know, you can listen to other, um, you know, uh, videos about our mission here, other shows about our mission, stories about my sister and her challenges with anorexia um, and, uh, you know, being able to be independent um, of my parents' um, support and how that has actually created such a significant wedge due to her emotional volatility um, with, with the entire family um, to the point now where, where um, she's not uh, financially stable nor has stable housing, um, which is incredibly sad. Um, so I see it firsthand in my family and I also see it with families who, uh, you know, as we, as we saw, you know, I saw with, my fa with families coming into to the mental health world when we worked at families who had gotten to that point. Um, our goal here at MTC, our mission here, is to eliminate uh, suicidal actions and thoughts for the highly sensitive population around the world. That's something, a mission that we will complete uh, with your support, with your direction, with your direct action, uh, whether you work with us or not, that ripple effect of understanding the challenge and how serious this is has to come from uh, a mutual follow-through. And it's also likely something that we will tackle beyond my lifetime. So uh, the mission of this company has to be um, quite focused on our goals, um, but also very pointed. You know, we can't be um, beating around the bush and just trying to help like every um, everybody feel a little bit better. You know, our objective to eliminate suicidal actions for an entire population of 20% of the human uh, population uh, that means that we need to be quite uh, strategic here. So if this is a challenge that you have, uh, book a call with our, our team and see if that level of um, strategery, <laughs> I'm getting, um, see if that level of intense support is something that your family needs at this time. We will tell you, okay? Because we are um, focused only on solving that problem. And uh, if, if it's that intense, we'll, we'll let you know. If it's not, uh, then we'll point you in a different direction. We'll either support you in um, working with a professional who can who can serve this at a, at a lower level um, or uh, supporting you in noticing what barriers are in the way before you would become a fit to work with us. Uh, lastly, understanding that if your child is having meltdowns or shutdowns or, or wanting to harm themselves due to trauma or some other um, mental illness or um, diagnosable uh, need, then we would point, be pointing you in the direction of evidence-based treatment that is relevant uh, because um, it's important that we stay focused on our specialty here at MTC and that you know exactly where you need to go. Um, so that conversation is a win-win, right? Um, we get to keep our high success rate because we only work with families that um, that uh, you know fit appropriately, and you get to to know exactly what uh, system you need to be following and, and what what uh, approach you need to be pri uh, prioritizing. Um, so book that conversation, okay? We look forward to having that conversation with you, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. 
We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen, what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson, and we look forward to speaking to you soon.